So many of us are weighed down by vices, held back by burdens, defined by failures. In shame, our demons drive us into hiding. But God is the author of new stories, unwriting endings, moving toward outcasts, finding failures, welcoming the unworthy. Experience the power of transforming grace when God finds you with blood on your hands. get into God's word again this Sunday. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I had a teacher in my uh, senior year of high school who was like an older guy, but just super rad. One of the best teachers I ever had. It was my English class, IB English in uh, senior year at Gresham High School of all places. And I remember uh, him particularly because he would act out the books that we were reading. Like we would watch him and he would just get so animated. And one book in particular, I remember was because of the way he acted out, and it was uh, Macbeth uh, by Shakespeare. And so he's going through this, and it's this particular time where uh, Lady Macbeth had murdered King Duncan. And after having murdered him and gotten away with it, she was descending into insanity. And I remember uh, the teacher was going back and forth, demonstrating what the play, uh, what the actors would have been doing as, as she went back and forth, sleepwalking, scrubbing her hands furiously, saying, out damn spot, out damn spot. And as seniors, we were all like, oh my gosh, like he just said that in class. It was super awesome. But the intensity of this moment was really in the fact that deep down, it wasn't that she actually had blood on her hands. It's that her soul was stained. She kept saying, man, all of the uh, perfume in Arabia can't sweeten this little hand. Out, damn spot. Out. And here's the deal. What we're going to do today is we're going to consider this idea of having blood on our hands. And I want to ask you, when was it that you had blood on your hands? Maybe for you, you're saying, like, I've never murdered anybody, bro. <laughs> like, I've never, I've never done that. But we have all done things, said things, had motives where we say, man, that stain that she felt on her soul, like, I've, I've felt that stain before. When was it that you had blood on your hands? Well, we're continuing in this series called Never Too Far Gone. And we're actually looking at an account, uh, the life of David, in particular Psalm 51, where he is repenting of this experience where he had blood on his hands. Would you guys open up a Bible and turn it to Psalm 51? If you're using the Bibles on the tables in between the seats, um, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. But you can actually turn to page 443 and we'll read it there. We're going to read the first 12 verses closely today. Look at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is God's word, amen. In this passage, um, what we're reading here is a prayer. It's a psalm. And it's a song here that David is singing in repentance for what he has done. And some of you are new to the Bible, many of you. And I, I want to ask you, like, what has David done? Well, what we find actually even before this psalm is actually kind of a heading, an introduction or title above. Uh, And if you look at the top there, in verse 1, there's actually this, uh, it'll probably be an italicized, uh, you know, font there at the top. Look at that. Here's what it says. We get the backstory in it. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. What is David's sin that we're talking about here? Well, in this, in this small, like, part A of that verse, we find the backstory. And what's that? We can actually know um, the entire backstory from first Sam, or 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And, and the backstory is this. Uh, if you don't know who King David is, he is perhaps the greatest king that has ever lived, but definitely the greatest king Israel had ever seen. And he was tremendous in his youth. As a young shepherd boy, when no one else would face a giant champion uh, from the Philistines named Goliath, he stepped out in faith and defeated Goliath, taking his head. This is David. He goes on and he's anointed king, uh, but the current king is not super stoked on that because he's like, who is this young shepherd boy? He's not going to be king. I'm the king. And so he seeks his life. But David, though he's running from the current king of Israel, though his life is at stake, he never seeks to kill that king. He never takes revenge on him, but he honors the throne and he honors King Saul in the midst of all of that. David was a man of character. David was a man of great charisma when he finally stepped into the throne. And David was a man of courage. David's a pretty amazing man in his youth. Uh, We would say that David is a stud, right? He's a stud. But here's what happens when he is at the height of his power, when he's at the height of his kingly reign. He sees a woman from a rooftop, and she's beautiful, and she's taking a bath there. And he decides, I'm going to commit adultery with her. And that's just what he does. And afterwards, uh, she gets pregnant. And to hide the sin, to hide his failure, he not only tries to, like, set it up where it appears he didn't do it, he can't. And so ultimately he kills her husband. This is now the fall of King David. And this is kind of the backstory. This is David's sordid story. This is the darkness. But here's what's interesting. We find this, that David's story is actually our song. You're saying, like, David's story is actually our song as the people of God. Uh, Why do we say that? David's story is kind of interesting. It's kind of dark. We would never sing this. We would never sing his repentance because we don't do that kind of thing. But actually, in this text, it says we do. Look again at the introduction. It says these three words right at the beginning. To 
the choir master. To the choir master. Why are we, what does it say to the choir master at the beginning of the psalm? You ever wondered that when you read the psalms? Well, here is why. Because the choir master was set in charge of leading God's people in song, in worship. He was literally the worship leader for all of Israel. And so this is like, he's saying these words are on the Spotify playlist of the worship that the church puts out on like Instagram every week, right? Like, you want to sing along? Sing along with these words to the choir master. We're going to see it in David's song. And so here's what I want you to see in this. David's sordid story is actually our song. David's uh, repentance here is a posture of our hearts as well as the people of God that we should sing into this, that we should lean into this. See, some of you guys are coming to church and you're saying like, man, I I've come to church because I want to become a better person. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but you may be coming in with the false notion that Christians are sort of the people who are spiritually superior to other people. And here's what I want you to realize, that discipleship to Jesus is literally the opposite. Discipleship to Jesus is not being like a spiritual Navy SEAL. It's not being spiritually uh, prideful. Spiritual self-righteousness is the antithesis to discipleship of Jesus. Instead, it is hinged upon dependence upon the grace of God in light of our brokenness. Discipleship is embracing our weakness, our failure, our sin, and our need for Jesus. That's what discipleship is, and that's what we learn here as we sing this song. I remember uh, living in Sacramento, California for a short time, and I joined this like small group, this guy's prayer group on Sundays. And this circle of dudes was really interesting. I felt really out of place because they were all like just really successful, wealthy guys, and I was like 20 and just super poor. And like they're all successful. They had a bunch of kids, big families. And, like we didn't have kids yet, and they were all like it's just so random, like all just well over six foot. And I'm you know like not that, just so you know. And so, uh, and two of them were even like bodybuilders. And so I'm like, I'm just joining this group as like the odd man out, uh, these bodybuilders who were just super successful. And so uh, when you're in a group like that, you're just anticipating being like the lame one. Well, as we entered into prayer, something intriguing happened. Most of the guys in that circle would just pray to God and begin to weep, just begin to cry. These big buff, like successful dudes, here they are in their super nice clothes. They're just like, Lord, thank you, just bawling instantly. And why were they crying? I was like, what is happening right now? Well, the, the story of each one of these guys was they had come to Christ later in life. They had come to Christ, uh, you know, later in their teenage years or early 20s or whatever like that. And because of that, they had these stories of brokenness. They realized, hear me on this, their deep need for grace. See, that's what discipleship to Jesus is, and that's why we lean into this song. Consider Paul in the New Testament, perhaps the greatest Christian who's ever lived, and he is coaching a young pastor. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this to this young pastor. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now you hear that and you think, well, Paul is just saying that he's the worst of sinners. And if you know Saul, Paul's backstory, that he really was a bad sinner, he was killing Christians or overseeing their death at least. Um, but that's not actually what he's saying there. He would believe that. But here's the truth. This is one of five um, trustworthy sayings in the New Testament. The trustworthy sayings were, uh, most scholars argue, these creedal statements. These things that Paul is urging the church to memorize and take to heart so that they might understand the gospel. Memorize this. You memorize this and take it to heart. Not that Paul is the worst sinner, but that I 
am the worst sinner. And that we would all actually embrace that reality. See, the good news of the gospel begins with the bad news. And the gospel says this, that the heart of the human problem is the problem of our own hearts. And that is where we begin to see our need for grace. Paul Tripp says this, the church is not a theological classroom. And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, I'm super bummed to hear that because I love theology, right? And, he's, and as a theologian, he's not saying that we don't do a ton of theology. He's saying that's not the crux of the matter. Here's what theology does in us. The church, it is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. This is the church, a collection of fallen and broken people who find their need for grace here. And so let me ask you this. Where do you find yourself in, the, in this first A part of verse 1? Where do you find yourself in the story of David? Some of you are coming in here and you're saying, man, I've tried to do life on my own, honestly. And I have the scars to show it. I've lived without God and I've said, forget you, God. And, and I know what that story's like. And you're coming in here with a heavy heart. Man, find yourself in this prayer. Find yourself in this psalm. Others of you are here and you're saying like, oh man, here's the, here's the sermon for all the really broken people. And that's just not me. You're saying like, I'm even an influential Christian in this church or I'm an influential Christian from another church or whatever it is. Here's what I wanna tell you, that so was David. You see that? David was perhaps the most influential man in Israel until Jesus. And here he is, what we know in this Psalm, if you actually look at the details of this introduction, when Nathan the prophet went to him, Here's what's up with David. He was a leader of Israel, known for all of his glory days. And now he has this sin and he keeps it secret for over a year. His private character, his private integrity didn't line up with his public reputation. And see, I want you to see this, that some of us, we're saying, I look really good on the outside and I'm doing all this stuff for God. But the truth is that you know in the quiet of your heart that actually your private character before God there are these gaps between that and your public reputation. I want you to experience healing today. No matter who you are, where you're coming from, there is healing in the gospel of Jesus and there is healing in the way that David responds here. And so we need to examine that. Look at the healing. Look at verses one through six. This is how David responds in light of all this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that I may be justified, excuse me, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here, here's what we find in these next verses. That raw confession leads to real healing. It's raw confession, not holding it back, not hiding it, but laying it all out before Jesus, laying it all out before God the Father in the Holy Spirit. David confesses three things that lead to healing for us when we confess them as well. Here is the first one, the damage of his sin. 
the damage of his sin. In verse 1, he says, have mercy on me. In verse 1, later on, he says, blot out my transgressions. And in verse 2, he says, wash me, cleanse me. He is acknowledging here that his sin has caused real damage. He, he deserves punishment. There's a stain on his record, and he actually feels the sense of wearing shame. Look, in the same way, we need to lay out before God, look, I know that I've caused real damage with you, with others, and I actually want to confess that. Here's what I want you to see. Sometimes we bulk at hearing about sin in the Bible, but that's actually not healthy. Preaching on Sunday, every day as we're studying scripture, we actually desperately need to recognize our sin and feel conviction. And when we don't feel conviction, we're actually not led into true worship. David's worship here is an acknowledgement of the damage he's committed and the damage that he's caused. Now, this flies in the face of our culture's response to sin. Have you noticed how our culture responds to sin? Uh, Some of us would say that uh, our culture doesn't even acknowledge sin. And maybe that was true at certain times in American history. I don't think that's true today. I think we actually, in our culture, recognize sin, but we respond to it in inappropriate and inaccurate ways because of our false beliefs. So our culture's response to sin, I would say, is three things. The first one is this, naturalism. Naturalism. That we're only animals, right? And so we're acting on our natural instincts. And see, here's the thing. This first response is how we respond to sin that is in us, but we like. It's naturalism. When we sin, for instance, sexually, or when we have these sexual identities that God's word speaks against, we tend to, because we like our sin, we say, well, it's just natural. Like, we're all just material universe animals created by accident, and because of that, like, you can't judge what I want to do with sex because, man, we're just living in light of our instincts here. It's just naturalism. Number two, Second response is victim mentality, that I am a casualty of external abuses. In this case, uh, these are not sins that we're saying like are just natural. This is what we do when we sin in ways that we actually recognize. Maybe I should not do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Or we we recognize this is a sin that we commit that we don't like. It's the victim mentality. Because what we're saying there is because of these external forces, because of the system, because of what I have suffered, now I'm responding this way and you can't hold me personally accountable because of what I have experienced. Now, I'm not shaming you if you've actually experienced victimhood. If you've actually experienced stuff, that's nothing to brush aside or or to um, dismiss here today. But what I do want to say is the victim mentality that says I get to sin now in light of what I've suffered is actually of this world and not of the Holy Spirit. And number three, cancel culture. This is where we say, you are a monster and must be eliminated. It's kind of interesting. When we sin, we embrace naturalism or victim mentality. But when they sin in ways that we don't like, what do we do? You're canceled, bro. You are a monster that must be eliminated. And we're now living not in like this um, logical sense, but now our culture is less logical. We're actually a fear and shame culture, highly emotional, where we're canceling people with shame. David doesn't do that. He says, I've caused damage. Have mercy. Blot out. Wash me. Number two thing he confesses here is the definition of sin. He rightly defines his sin. 
He doesn't dismiss, distract from, or downplay it. Look at verse 1 and 3. He uses twice the word transgression. In verse 2, 4, and 5, he uses three times the word sin or chata in the Hebrew. And in verse 2 and 5, he uses iniquity twice, which, which each of these meanings is significant. They have their own connotation. Uh, transgression is crossing a boundary. Sin or chata is falling short or missing the mark. And iniquity is twistedness or perversion. Now, um, when we hear these definitions, he is rightly defining sin. He's actually laying out and talking about it explicitly. And we, we don't do that. We tend to want to use uh, what we call euphemisms, which is like saying things to like pretty them up, talking about negative things in a way that doesn't seem as bad. So we say, look, I was just hangry. Like, I'm hangry, bro. We say silly things like, I fibbed. What you mean is you like broke a Ten Commandment and you full-blown lied, bro. But we say fibbed and we're like, well, people don't, you know, it just sounds a little bit better. Fibbed. You cheated on your taxes, homie. That's not. <laughs> we say, I'm an Enneagram 3. So, of course, I'm going to chase like success and victory. And if you're in my way, like I'm just an Enneagram 3. You're like, no, call it what it is. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Use the biblical terminology. This is what we need to do. See, sin, it actually crushes our spirit and it ruins our life. And so we need to present it before God. This word hata for sin is actually significant. It can both mean um, acts of commission or actively sinning or omission and passively not doing what we should do according to God's law. See, commission is when we do that thing we shouldn't have done. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we get angry, we're violent, we sin. Omission is where we don't do what we ought to do. It's the husband who should, before God, be leading his family spiritually, having a vision for the home, and caring and pursuing for his wife and children. He's saying, like, I'm not going to do that. It's the Christian who's not living on mission, not trying to evangelize, not seeking to honor God with everything and, and read the scriptures as omission. It's the parent who's just saying, like, look, look, my kids are just getting indoctrinated out there at their school, and I'm not actively discipling them, but, man, the church, I'll pay the church, and they'll disciple my kids. When it's actually, no, like, this is your role. This is your calling. It's sins of omission. I guess feeling right now. This feels awful. We hear these definitions of sin, these very biblical things that David speaks to, and we say, like, I don't want to define my sin like that. Like, if you're honest, how many of you guys are just praying on, like, you know, a Thursday morning, and you're saying, Lord, I've just committed, like, iniquity and perverseness. Forgive, blot out my trans... Like, we're not praying that. We tend to, to balk at these terms. But we embrace these terms when we see the third thing, the direction of our sin. First the damage, then the definition, and then we actually see the direction. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does he say there? He's talking to God, and he's saying, against you and you only have I sinned. And if you're paying attention, you're like, that's kind of strange, because he definitely sinned against Uriah, who he killed, and Bathsheba, who he, like, slept with. This is definitely, this would be like if somebody punched you in the face later today, and then looked at the person next to you and was like, hey, against you and you only have I sinned. 
You're like, my face, bro, is bleeding. Like, you got to deal with me. Like, what is going on here? Isn't that strange? He's saying, you, you're the one I sinned against, God. Well, we, we tend to misunderstand this if we don't embrace a biblical worldview. See, in the worldview of scripture, we understand that God rules and reigns. He is king over everything. That he is our creator and by virtue of just creating us, not even if we've had faith in him, even if we're like total non-Christian, God owns us and longs for us to glorify him. He has made us for himself. We learn in Colossians 1, 15 and on that Jesus holds all things together, that he's the image of the invisible God and through him all things were created and thereby we owe him glory. And so whenever we sin, it's not just against horizontally the people around us or the system of righteousness, it is ultimately God's righteousness and the people that God created and we understand this in a biblical worldview. Um, This weekend there's been like this viral video of Uh, somebody who actually did something incredibly horrendous. It's this bus driver. I don't know if you saw this uh, on the news, but this bus driver actually went up to a girl who had her mask down the wrong way, and he's telling her, put your mask on, put your mask on. And then because she wouldn't listen to him, he actually struck her in the face. It was a bus driver at like a school. And so I'm watching these videos. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, I'm I'm feeling mad. And and then so I, I go into the comments to like let other people get mad for me. So I'm like reading the angry comments, and it's just funny because everybody who's a parent responds in the exact same way. And what do they say? That that guy is lucky the police got him. <laughs> because if that were my kid, I would kill that guy. You know, parent after parent. Why are they doing that? Well, if you think about it, it's because the parent feels that they are the most offended party in that situation. Like even if you're the little girl, you're going like, are you crazy? Like, ow, my face. Like, what is going on? You're psycho. But you're probably not thinking, like, just to be honest, you're not like, I'm going to kill this guy as a little girl. You're like, you're crazy. Get away from me. But the parents are like, no, we're, we're going to kill that guy. <laughs> that, that's how they feel. Well, that's the same way that God feels. That actually God is a father. And because he loves us, the sin that separates us from him and the sin that separates us from one another, he is the primary offended party. This is where D.A. Carson actually calls sin and defines sin as the de-godding of God. He says, you're putting something in the place that only God belongs and you are de-godding, you are dethroning God himself. The biblical worldview insists on the atrociousness of sin because of the biblical worldview's awareness of the altitude of our God. That is why sin is so horrendous. Acts 3.15 tells us this. This is Peter preaching to a, a big group of people and he says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, Peter was there at the trials and all that when Jesus was going to be crucified. But these people weren't all necessarily there. And so why can Peter say, you killed the author of life in context? Well, here's why. Because he's saying all of our sin crucifies Jesus. Every one of us, as we sin, we're actually spitting in the face of God. We're lifting our hand against God and we're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And when we realize that the one who loves us and died for us is the very one we've sinned against, then we know our need for his grace. I joined this church uh, many years ago. Lindsay and I joined this church, and uh, we joined a small group, and it was just a balling small group, like just a a phenomenal thing. And uh, we liked it so much because the leaders were incredible. 
uh, particularly the guy who's leading it every week, he just had a fire for Jesus and grace. And I was like, what is up with this guy? And I didn't understand it until I heard his story. Um, he actually shared his testimony one night and just unashamedly was like, hey, when I was like a younger dude and uh, my wife and I first got married, he said, I was addicted to pornography all this time in secret and she didn't know about it. Um, but then one day when everything came out and my wife actually uh, found out about it and, and they talked, uh, she was absolutely devastated to the core. Like she's finding out about this and he is thinking like, this is gonna be like no big deal. Like, I'm sorry, let's move on and I'll try to work harder at it. And he realized, he says, when I looked in her eyes and how crushed she was, how my sin spat in her face and said, yeah, I don't care if you're being faithful to me. I don't care if you cherish me. I don't care if you've committed your whole life to me. I'm saying like, I want these other images of women. Like that's what, and so she, she just felt crushed and used and abandoned in this moment, betrayed completely in, in, in the way he's saying, like, you're not good enough for me. And looking in her tear-filled eyes and, the, and her crushed spirit, he said, like, it awakened something in me, realizing, like, these two things cannot coexist. I am desperately in need of God's grace, and I can't just pet the sin anymore. Like, I have to murder it and follow Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Because here's the reality. When we look at our sin, we're like, it's not that bad. I don't want to define it that way. But as we see the one who our sin offends, it is then and only then that we realize the weight and we need grace. Now, this is very heavy. And maybe there are even things today that I've touched on so far that like made your heart sink. Maybe somebody sinned against you the way I'm talking about. Maybe you are living in, in some of these sins and, or something that relates to it and, and you felt that moment as I'm talking about this where you like kind of hate me because your heart is sinking and you're feeling like, man, like I feel despair over this. Again, I, I think that's actually an important moment that we acknowledge that and we feel that. But in the gospel, the good news is that's not the end of the story. In fact, what do you do when you have some of this sinking your soul? The reality is that when we are sunk in sin, God's love is deeper still. Look at um, what we see next, these two things that we see are actually God's nature. We learn two things about what God does when we request grace. Verse one says this, or excuse me. The first one is this. He makes you clean. Look at verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now he's using some ancient language here. You're like, what is hyssop? You guys read the word hyssop there and you're like, yeah, I just for sure know what hyssop is. Unless you're like into like weird foliage, inner decor or something like the two of you. What is hyssop? The Hebrew reader would have understood exactly what this was. It has echoes from Exodus 12, 22. Hyssop uh, are these branches that when God was freeing his people out of the oppressive state of Egypt and setting them free, he, he enacted plagues. And the final plague was the angel of death was gonna come over every house and put to death the firstborn. Only those houses that took hyssop branches and dipped them in a spotless lamb's blood that was slain and brushed the blood over their doorposts were safe. 
because in effect, it was the lamb's blood in their place for their death that they deserved. So when he says hyssop here, there are echoes of that story. And ultimately, we learn in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and actually from the book of Hebrews as well, that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and all this stuff actually didn't take away sin. It was just like a holding thing. But ultimately, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that Jesus is our ultimate Passover lamb. That when Jesus willingly died on the cross, it was not just a random circumstance in history, that that was a theological transaction where he died in our place for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve. Now hear me on this. When your heart sunk, what you need to know is not that just you are a sunken sinner, but that ultimately God's love goes deeper still. That God actually, by the blood of Jesus, makes you clean. And so many of us I've watched over this year have uh, friends, family, people that we know distantly who've actually committed suicide this year. I think this is the year that I have seen more suicides in the news and just in relationships been closer to than, than ever before. And there are reasons for that. But when as I watch this happen over and over and over in this sub-pandemic of, of despair, what I'm seeing there is, is that people ultimately deep down feel that there's this death that can solve everything. And listen to me, that is a demonic lie. Your, your death doesn't solve anything. It actually breaks the people around you and creates more ricochet devastation. But we think that there's this death that can actually set us free. And it's not just a lie, it's actually a half-truth. Because there is a death that set us free. And it's not your death, it's the death of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. He says here, make, it makes me whiter than snow. You can make me whiter than snow. And I love the term he uses here, if you study the text, where he says, purge me. Purge me is language we don't typically use. But this word, purge me, James Montgomery Boyce, the commentator, says this. It is based on the word for sin that we read earlier, chata. It's a variation of chata. And literally means, de-sin me. De-sin me. David wanted to have his sin completely purged away. What a prayer that is. Lord, I'm in sin, but you have the power by your blood to de-sin me. Make that your prayer today, many of you. Many of you need to make that your prayer today. Would you wash me clean? Would you purge me? Would you de-sin me? Uh, now, a couple weeks ago, there was a guy in the hallway after service. Right, young adults, I'm, I'm walking out, and I've seen him a few times. I'm like, hey, I haven't met you. Like, what is your name? And, and we start talking, and I'm like, what's your story? Like, what, what brought you here? And he says, I'm, I'm, I have a couple friends here. He's like, I'm not, I'm not like a Christian. Like, I'm not a church person. And he says, I'm here as, like, just an honest truth seeker. I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. Like, honest truth seeker. I'm like, that's rad. What, what do you mean? He says, I'm honestly just, I'm, I know that there's something else out there. I know that my soul is longing for more, but I don't know which religion is. So I'm just kind of trying you guys first. And I'm going to try every single religion. And I looked at him and I said, bro, that, that, I, mad respect, but I could help you skip some steps today. <laughs> I, I go, dude, look, can, can I just summarize? He's like, please do. Like, oh, I want to know about other religions. I'm like, let me, let me summarize every other religion for you. You clean yourself up to save you. Every single one. Confucianism, save yourself, wash yourself. Every single one we go through. Ultimately, the only one that's distinct is the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus, the message of Christianity, the core message of the cross. And it says this, you don't, you don't have the ability to clean yourself up before God. And you won't even will yourself to do so. Instead, Jesus Christ has come down to wash you by the blood of his cross. And it's the only message that carries that. So Jesus makes us clean. God makes us clean. And he prays into that. And then finally, we see this. This is the final idea. That not only does he make you clean, but he makes you new. Like he makes you new. Let me help you feel the weight of that, verse 10. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's what's in. She says, renew a right spirit within me. Here's the prayer. He wasn't just looking for a cleaner version of his old heart. He was looking for an entirely new heart in Jesus. And here is the truth today. If you are new to Christianity, if you haven't put faith in Jesus, I want to tell you this, that Jesus wants to make you new. Maybe you've come in and you're saying like, man, I know what my past life was and I don't like it. There are people who are saying like, I I don't want myself anymore. Even talking again about those suicides, we're saying like my life is worthless. But here's the truth. Maybe there is some worthless things that you've done, but you can have a new life in Jesus today. You're saying you can become clean and you can become new. You can become a brand new person. This is the promise of scripture in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 26. Where said, he says that God will take out your heart of stone and give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh. And Jesus himself takes up this idea in John chapter three. And he says it this way in sort of different language, you can be born again. Born above born from the Holy Spirit. That the idea is that your old life actually can be crucified. Your old life can actually be done away with. All of the sin and shame can actually be set aside and he won't just de-sin you, he will renew you. He'll give you a whole new life. God the Holy Spirit will come to live literally inside of you. I can hardly even imagine what all that means. But don't you want it? Don't you want to be made new? Today, will you guys stand? Stand right now to worship this God who makes us entirely new. And some of you guys, as we stand for worship, some of you guys haven't been made new, I would guess. You haven't received a new life. You haven't yet put faith in Jesus. Today, I wanna invite you to put faith in Jesus. If you today are saying, I need to become a Christian, I need to start following Jesus, I need to put faith in Jesus, the Bible actually teaches that you have to actually put faith in him, that you need to receive his death and resurrection by faith. And we're all gonna be raising hands and singing in worship in just a moment, but if you need to receive a new life, Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus is speaking to some of us today. That he's still talking. 
that by his spirit, he's still cleansing. He's still renewing. You can receive a new life. The prayer is, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. I'm actually inviting you by faith to raise a hand right now to receive a new life. Before we move on, if you wanna become a Christian, if you wanna receive a new life, would you actually raise a hand so I can pray over you? If you wanna receive Jesus, his unfailing love, a renewed heart, receive him anytime as we're singing. And here's what I'd ask, maybe you're not comfortable raising right now, during the song, lift your hand for the first time. In the secrecy of other people worshiping, just receive him by faith. And if you do, here's what I'm asking, that you would actually go over to our response room. As we respond, receive Jesus and ask them to pray for you. Say, hey, I just received Jesus today. I want to receive a new heart. What does that look like? Will you pray for me? And the people over there are gracious and loving and they're going to walk you through it. And they're going to care for you. All of us, we get to respond today in worship. We're gonna do that in a couple ways. This, re- this cleansing is experienced every week by representation of Jesus' body and blood in communion. This is a sacred and beautiful thing, and it's for believers. If you believe in Jesus, I wanna encourage you to go to the table on either side of the room and receive washing. Take a moment. Don't just drink and eat the elements, but actually pause and confess. And it's actually important that you confess to somebody else if you have secret sin, that you would reveal that to to your spouse, to the friend who brought you, to the person that you trust here or later on today, that you actually confess and are washed clean by the forgiving grace of Jesus. As well, that prayer room, that response room is open for all of us to respond. You can give as an act of worship online or in the back. And lastly, we're gonna sing and lift hands to Jesus, amen.